This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 53, Things Missed. The following episode covers four short subjects that I either missed or glossed over um, since we started the podcast. And um, as time was short, as I had to prepare for my trip, um, I wanted to get something out to you. So I hope you enjoy these. Um, one of them is Operation Pied Piper. Another one is the sinking of the Lancastria. Uh, the third is the Channel Islands. And the final one is a little bit better look at the conquest of British Somaliland. And for my audible recommendation this time, I'm going to go way off the reservation and recommend Stephen King's book, 112263, a novel. Um, it's really amazing. It's Stephen King at his best, and it's 30 hours long. You can get it for free. And if you want to make your commute disappear, I guarantee you this book will do it. Operation Pied Piper When Great Britain declared war on Nazi Germany on September 3, 1939, it was obvious to those in government that the evolution of the airplane, but more specifically the bomber, meant that the days of the English Channel guaranteeing absolute safety was over. Now and hereafter, war meant everyone, women, children, the sick, and the old, were at risk. Children in particular were taken under consideration, since those who lived near potentially threatened areas, like along the coast or to the south, were in more danger. So Operation Pied Piper was started two days before that declaration of war and would eventually relocate more than 3.5 million people. And, of course, there would be more relocations, or rather, more re-relocations, in June 1940, as a seaborne invasion seemed likely. Another wave of mass movements occurred again in September of 1940, as the Blitz began. Added to this were the numerous non-official evacuations by those who had the means to depart for other parts of the empire, or to the U.S. In fact, war seemed possible, even inevitable, by 1938, 
So the Ministry of Health started working on the governmental evacuation scheme. In essence, the country was divided into zones of either to be evacuated, neutral, or far enough away to be considered a reception area. These were deemed safest while still being on the home island. The idea was to take those of the most threatened areas, which were mostly densely settled urban areas, and move them to private housing in rural areas. Later, camps would be set up that could hold thousands, if it came to that. And before it was all over, it did. By the summer of 1939, the government announced that it was ready to move and receive those who wanted to relocate. However, only about half of the school-aged children were moved by their parents, instead of the expected 80%. Of course, the numbers changed drastically from region to region, with the majority of the parents from Manchester and Liverpool concerned that war would soon be coming to them. At first, with the declaration of war, children and others were simply gathered up and thrown on the first available train heading anywhere else. This panic caused confusion and more than a few tears. Some reception areas were overwhelmed and some hardly received anyone. Eventually, as time moved on without an invasion, the situation and people calmed down. The process was brought to order. The second evacuation effort started after the fall of France. From June 13th to the 18th, about 100,000 children were moved, in many cases for the second time, further north. By July, that number had grown to over 200,000. The situation was made only more intense as about 30,000 people migrated from the continent and another 25,000 people came from the Channel Islands. It was truly a time of coming together and national unity on an unprecedented scale. Still, nothing's perfect. There were bad hosts, thieves, looters, and others taking advantage of the chaos. In May of 1940, the Children's Overseas Reception Board was created. Their task was to evacuate children to the Dominions, but mostly to Canada, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. More than 200,000 applications were applied for. But the sinking of the ship City of Benares on September 17, 1940, brought this operation to a close. However, there were still many non-governmental evacuations. As the Blitz began in September of 1940, clearly it was a time for all restrictions or the excuse of limited government funds to be ignored. Free travel and billeting were offered by the government to those who had a place to go. Almost everyone had access to this. The children, the elderly, the disabled, pregnant women, and anyone who was ill. At the height of the Blitz, the population of London was reduced by just over 20%. But that is a story for another time. The Lancastria By the 17th of June, 1940, the War of France was all but over. What would become known as the Miracle of Dunkirk was two weeks in the past, and the British had found out late that previous night that French Premier Paul Renault was out of power and General Gamla was in charge, and would be asking the swift-moving Germans for an armistice. 
Clearly, it was past time to remove all British assets, people, and equipment from the continent. Thus, ships of all kinds were sailing from Britain to relatively safe French ports to embark British personnel. One of those was the HMT Lancastria, which had been commandeered by the government in April of that year as a troop ship. Participating in Operation Ariel, she sailed for the west coast of France to evacuate British nationals. She left Liverpool on June 14th under Captain Rudolf Sharp and arrived at the west coast of France at the mouth of the Loire River estuary two days later. She anchored 11 miles southwest of St. Nazir. By the next day, the 17th, she had taken on between 6,000 and 9,000 refugees, which included embassy staff, troops, RAF personnel, and civilians, which meant men, women, and children. The ship was designed to carry 2,200 passengers with a crew of 375. But Sharp, the captain, had been told to take on as many as humanly possible without regard to international law. At 1.50 p.m. on the 17th, a nearby 20,000-ton Orient liner was hit by a German bomb. Its bridge was destroyed, but she was still seaworthy. Surely the bombers would be back, seeking her and the Lancastria. The captain of the British destroyer, Havelock, told Sharp he could and should leave, but would be unescorted. The Havelock had to remain behind to see to the ongoing evacuation. Sharp, the captain, decided to wait. He had no defense against the German U-boats, assumed to be out there, waiting. Sure enough, the German bombers were soon back, and at 3.48 p.m., Junkers 88s flew over the ships and dropped their bombs. There would be three direct hits on the Lancastria. The damage was severe, but it was the near misses to the port side that ruptured its almost full fuel tanks that caused the surrounding sea to turn black. The ship listed from one side and then to the other. Thus rolling back and forth, it soon rolled all the way over, its hull jutting from the waves. By now, thousands of people were in the water looking for anything floating to grab onto. Because of the angle of the overturned ship, many of its lifeboats could not be released. So the people still on board climbed on top of the bottom of the ship. The Germans then returned and started strafing the people in the water. It may have been this that caused the oil in the water to ignite. In defiance of what was happening and what they saw, those on top of the hull started singing, Roll out the barrel, or There will always be in England. But the defiance and singing only lasted 20 minutes. That's how long it took the ship to disappear beneath the waves. According to a witness, one minute there was singing, and the next, silence, as the ship and those on top disappeared. Other evacuation vessels rushed to the scene to take on survivors. Because of the haste of the embarkation, numbers are not exact, but around 2,477 survivors were picked up. However, at least 3,000 people were lost. In truth, the number 
is probably higher. Churchill later wrote, When this news came to me in the quiet cabinet room during the afternoon, I forbade its publication, saying, The newspapers have got quite enough disaster for today, at least. I had intended to release the news a few days later, but events crowded upon us so black and so quickly that I forgot to lift the ban, and it was some time before the knowledge of this horror became public. Many families of the dead assumed that their relatives died with the BEF, but they were soon to learn more of the truth as the story was broken in the U.S. by the New York Times. It wasn't until July 26 that the story was released in the U.K. by the newspapers The Scotsman and The Daily Herald. However, the details never came out due to the government's cover-up. The crews of the rescue ships, along with the survivors, feared court-martial. The pictures we have of the doomed ship came from a volunteer from the HMS Highlander, Frank Clements who was an amateur photographer. Naval personnel were not allowed to take cameras on board, but Clements had his. It was a habit. No one ever saw Frank without his camera. But besides the photos, Clemens also took part in the rescue operation, pulling a baby from the water. He yelled at the troops to dump their gear, but some were under orders not to abandon their valuable rifles. He watched as soldiers sunk below the water, holding on to their gear. For the next few months, bodies washed up on the French shore. The locals gave them Christian burials. The Channel Islands On June 16, 1940, the following notice was posted around the Channel Islands. It was signed by King George VI. It read, Message from the King to the Bailiffs of Jersey and Guernsey. For strategic reasons, it has been found necessary to withdraw the armed forces from the Channel Islands. I deeply regret this necessity, and I wish to assure my people in the islands that in taking this decision, my government has not been unmindful of their position. It is in their interest that this step should be taken in present circumstances. The long association of the islands with the crown and the loyal service of the people of the islands have rendered to my ancestors and myself are guarantees that the link between us will remain unbroken. And I know that my people in the islands will look forward with the same confidence as I do to the day when the resolute fortitude with which we face our present difficulties will reap the reward of victory. Or, in other words, the Channel Islands of Jersey, Guernsey, Alderney, and Sark were 30 miles from France, now controlled by Germany, and 80 miles from Great Britain. Defense was impossible. Of course, the residents of these islands had already figured this out on their own. And on Sunday, June 30th, two weeks later, a German plane landed on the grassy runway of Guernsey and a single man climbed out, gun in hand. Just then, three British fighters flew over. The man scrambled back into the plane, dropping his gun, and took off. A few hours later, another German plane landed, and three armed men climbed out. 
One found the abandoned gun, and another let a nearby policeman know the island was being occupied. This would be the only British territory captured by the Germans. The occupation was peaceful at first, as the residents were asked by the king not to offer resistance. On July 1st, German troops marched through the streets of St. Peter Port, Guernsey's main town. The next day, posters were put up, letting the locals know what was and wasn't allowed. Certain shops and other businesses were quickly taken over by the German administrators. Next, the Dame of Sark, Sybil Mary Hathaway, the feudal ruler of a two-square-mile fief, was visited by German officers. Her relaxed demeanor surprised them, and the commanding officer played with the elderly lady by asking her if she was not frightened. She sweetly replied, in German, Is there any need to be afraid of German officers? But what she couldn't know was that this war would be unlike the ones before. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With the rapid collapse of French resistance, the question of what to do about the Channel Islands could not be thoroughly worked out by the British government. There was confusion, and so different policies emerged for the different islands. It was then decided to send as many ships over, and if anyone wanted to leave, they would be able to. The authorities on Alderney recommended that all islanders evacuate, and nearly all did so. However, the Dame of Sark encouraged everyone to stay, whereas Guernsey evacuated all children of school age and gave their parents the choice of going with them. At Jersey, the majority of the islanders chose to stay. Because the Germans did not know the islands were considered open by the British, they planned their conquest carefully. Reconnaissance flights were sent over, but found no organized military forces. On June 28th, a squadron of bombers was sent over the islands of Guernsey and Jersey. Their harbors were quickly destroyed. In another bit of confusion, tomato lorries were mistaken for troop carriers, and in the following raids from German fighters, 44 islanders were killed. German anti-aircraft defenses were soon set up, and all British servicemen found were made POWs. Moving swiftly, the occupiers changed the Channel Islands time zone from GMT to CET 
to match continental Europe. The islanders also now had to drive on the right side of the road. Four concentration camps would be built on Alderney. The prisoners were forced to build bunkers, gun emplacements, air raid shelters, and concrete fortifications. About 6,000 inmates would be housed there. They would include Spaniards, Jews, Soviet POWs, Eastern Europeans, and the British servicemen caught on the island who were on leave. Allegiance to the king and his desire for non-resistance was one thing, but over time, as SS personnel came to the island, the treatment of slave labor and locals hardened. Soon the islanders resisted in many ways, from housing escaped prisoners to keeping and using wireless sets to contact the home island. But most of the defiance came in a passive form, such as minor acts of sabotage, publishing underground newspapers, marking German signs with the letter V, as in Churchill's V sign campaign, and listening to the BBC. However, others, being only human, decided to go along to some degree to get along. Some of the local women fraternized with their occupiers and were soon called jerry bags by their disapproving peers. About 900 babies were born to German fathers. Balancing this out, another form of local resistance was the reviving of the local languages. Both Guernsey Norman French and Jersey Norman French, and yes, that is as close as I can come to pronouncing those, gained in popularity, and that frustrated many of the Germans who spoke German and English. As the islands were better fortified than the Normandy coast, the Allies decided to bypass them during the D-Day landings of June 1944. All supply ships were cut off, and soon the locals and their occupiers were on the point of starvation. Not until December of 44 was the International Red Cross ship SS Vega allowed to relieve the starving people on the islands. On May 8, 1945, the islanders were told by their German occupiers that the war was over. On that same day, Churchill broadcasted the following. Hostilities will end officially at one minute after midnight tonight. But in the interest of saving lives, the ceasefire began yesterday to be sounded all along the front, and our dear Channel Islands are also to be freed today. The Conquest of British Somaliland Italy declared war on Great Britain on June 10, 1940. By then, Hitler was quickly gobbling up Western and Central Europe, and Mussolini knew he needed to start his own empire building, or the spotlight of international politics would soon be narrowed down to one man, and he wasn't that man. Looking around, Mussolini deemed it best to add on to his African empire. Italy already controlled Libya, Etruria, Italian Somaliland, and Ethiopia to the southeast. And with Britain barely holding off the Luftwaffe over the English Channel, now seemed to be the perfect time to go after British possessions in Africa. Soon Italian troops launched attacks on British forces and possessions along the Libyan-Egyptian border. They took parts of Kenya and Sudan. 
But Mussolini had his eye on Egypt and wanted a proper invasion. But the launch of that invasion, to be led by the cautious Marshal Rodolfo Graziani, dragged on and on. But in late June, Amadea, the Duke of Aosta, the Governor-General and Viceroy of Italian East Africa, proposed an attack on British Somaliland. The King of Italy and Mussolini soon agreed. Preparations were made, and by August, the campaign was ready to commence. As the Italians marched toward British Somaliland in August 1940, they were led by Lieutenant General Nasi, the commander of the Italian Eastern Sector. In total, he had about 24,000 troops, light and medium tanks, artillery, and most important, superior air support. Facing Nasi was newly promoted Brigadier General Arthur Reginald Chatter, with about 4,000 men. He would receive reinforcements in early August, but would still be vastly outnumbered. He was also light on artillery pieces, had no armored cars, no tanks, nor any anti-tank weapons. At dawn on August 3, 1940, the Italian army crossed over the border into British Somaliland. The plan was straightforward, to advance on the port capital Berbera in three columns, while letting their superior numbers and equipment push the British aside, or to see the folly of their defense. The westernmost column would make for the small port of Zila, west of Berbera, near the French-Somaliland border, just in case the French offered some support to the British, however unlikely. The center column would come up, occupy, and make base at Hargesia, just before Berbera. The right column had the job of protecting the center column's flank, as it approached Awina. The left column took the port of Zila on August 5th, and then started sending light forces east to increase the pressure on Berbera. The center column had set up base at Hargesia, and then made for the Mirgo Pass towards Berbera. They had been held up by the Somaliland Camel Corps, but a few Italian light tanks pushed back the opposition. The Mirgo Pass would lead to Tug Argan, a dry, sandy riverbed, their next objective. The right column had reached Anduina on August 6th, and then sent reinforcements to another village near Tug Argan. The reason for this was that it seemed the British were not retreating fast enough. Chatter was using his Camel Corps to skirmish with and harass the advanced Italian troops. He was buying time while discussing the situation with his superior, but his actions led to the Italians focusing the mass of their forces on Tug Argan. On August 7th and 8th, the British received reinforcements and a new commander, Major General Reed Godwin Austin. More reinforcements were to be sent out, but they would not reach the coast in time. Since the idea of a major British counteroffensive was out of the question, the idea was to take up a defensive position on six hills that overlooked the only road to Berbera. It was hoped the Italians would break themselves on these defenses and either withdraw or that the British would be able to hold out until reinforcements arrived, opening up more options for Godwin Austin. 
On August 11th, an Italian brigade attacked a hill and, using their numbers, took control. However, they suffered many casualties. The Italian casualties were part of the British plan, but losing the hill was not. The next day, all the remaining hills in British possession were simultaneously attacked. Another hill, Mill Hill, was taken by the Italians, but more importantly, two of their four British light battery howitzers were also lost to the invaders. August 13th and 14th saw heavy fighting, and each side's fortunes ebbed and flowed. The Italians didn't take any additional hills, but were able to move more men into position behind the defenders' front line. So, on the 14th, Godwin Austin informed General Wavell, his commander, of his current situation. It came down to this. If they stayed, they would eventually lose and all end up prisoners. But if they withdrew, and it was of their own time and choosing, Godwin Austin felt that at least 70% of the troops could be saved to fight another day. His message was straightforward, and so was the reply that came the next day. He was ordered to withdraw from British Somaliland. After Wavell's response was received, another hill, Observation Hill, was taken. After dark, the defenders at Tug Argon started their withdrawal and had by morning established a new front ten miles behind Tug Argon's hills. For the last few days, the Royal Navy had been constructing an all-tide jetty and, when complete, started evacuating civilian and administrative officials to the waiting ships. By the 16th of August, the British troops were being embarked. By now, it was obvious to both sides what was happening. But the question was, were the Italians going to let the British go in relative peace, or gather as many prisoners and casualties as they could, so Mussolini could look Hitler in the eye at any future peace negotiations with the Allies? For Mussolini's part, he was happy to let the British leave. He would get a major victory out of this, and his country would be more enthusiastic for the next phase of his plans, the invasion of Egypt. Of course, the British were not privy to any of this, so when an Italian column was spotted near Berbera to the west on the 17th, the HMS series was sent to bombard the troops and halt them. These losses were more than Mussolini counted on. The British had to go. So instead of watching the British leave in their own time, the center column, led by Lieutenant General de Simone, advanced on the rearguard position at Barcasson in the late morning of the 17th. But the advance was held up by fierce resistance and, at one point, by a bayonet charge of the Black Watch. The Italians suffered heavy casualties and were held up, but just barely. The British knew that on the morrow, the Italians would bring up their tanks and their artillery. So the British forces left their position at Barcasson that night. Now all British forces were heading to Berbera. By the early morning of the 18th, most of the troops were loaded onto ships, but the HMS Hobart, serving as headquarters, remained until the morning of the 19th to pick up stragglers and oversee the destruction of any remaining stores and supplies. 
The local Somalis of the Camel Corps asked to remain behind to look after their people and families. And the British commander gave his assent. Although short on arms, until the factories back in Britain could produce enough to bring their forces to full strength, the Somalis were allowed to keep their arms. Overall, the British were allowed to leave, but made the Italians pay for this victory, with many casualties. On August 19th, the Italians took control of Berbera, and then moved along the coast to wrap up their conquest of British Somaliland. It was now a part of the Italian Empire. Mussolini crowed, and Hitler congratulated him on his victory. The Italians used Berbera as a submarine base for their Red Sea flotilla in the last months of 1940. They had other plans as well, but lost Berbera and British Somaliland in March of the next year. As the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 15th Punjab regiments sailed from Aden, Egypt, to reoccupy the area. But that is another story. For now, Mussolini boasted of his new Italian empire. Now, it was Egypt's turn. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Just wanted to give you a quick note that next week, and I'm going to sound like Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast, I'll be on a plane flying to another state and will have to leave behind all of my books and computers, so there's going to be a delay before episode 54 comes out. But I promise I'll get to it as soon as I can. Um, this one, I just had to get out, squeeze it out right before I left, so um, if I sound tired, I'm very sorry. But as soon as I get back, we'll pick up where we left off on August 24th, getting ready for the third phase of the Battle of Britain. And then we can move on to Greece and North Africa and all the, um, all the other stuff. But I will still keep up with the uh, Facebook, a history of world war two podcast on Facebook and the Twitter feed. So I'll keep that going and I will see you as soon as I can take care everyone.